0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This episode is a little different than what we've done before. I've had quite a few people tell me they'd like to hear me interviewed on the show. I'm always the one asking questions But what do I think? Well, one person who requested this also said he wanted to be the one to do the interview. Kyle Kesterson is a musician, restaurateur, and fan of the Cooper Vortex. He'll be the one interviewing me. So I hope you enjoy this episode with my good friend, Kyle Kesterson.
1: All right. So, first question um, How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing pretty good. Um, just went to my daughter's basketball game.
1: Okay. Very cool. Um, I've got a daughter too. She's six. I was at gymnastics with her. So, uh, very, very cool. I think it's really rad that there's a, I mean, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I like when, I, one of the things that interests me about you is that you're like one of the younger guys, Nikki's one of them too, uh, Nikki Brown, you, I follow you guys like crazy. And I was like, I always like just. Knowing that there's other just young, cool dudes out there that are following this, you
0: know? I'm into that also. I'm 36. So okay. it is interesting that at 36, I'm one of the young people in a group it's, at this point in my life. <laughs>
1: totally, totally. And that's really cool.
0: But I definitely and, get what you're saying that, like, especially listening to someone, if you can relate, like all these guests are in, in their 50s or 60s, but the guy hosting right. the show, he's my same
1: age. Right. Right, and I and I think that's just a really cool aspect of the show. Um, you have some of the most interesting guests that I've ever had or ever heard on a podcast before. Like it is insane, man. Um, it goes from you know just like crazy scientists people, it seems like, to people who think he was the Zodiac killer, to people who don't think he was the Zodiac killer, and all the other you know in betweens. And it's kind of a, it's it's a frustrating case, isn't it? Like it, it it just blows my mind a lot of the times. So,
0: yeah. I think it's frustrating uh, because it's unsolved.
1: <laughs> right. I heard a podcast of you guys earlier and you were talking about how you wish the Tina bar money had never been found. And I was like, I, I thought about that for 10 seconds and I was like, that is such a brilliant point, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. So now we're interviewing you. All right. So, um, just out of curiosity, uh, where where are you from? Are you in the the area where DB Cooper
0: jumped from? Or I, I grew up there, so I, I lived in Woodland, Washington, which is the town closest to the drop zone. Um, you know, a- Ariel, Amboy, Yakult—that area. Those aren't really towns. Um, okay. Woodland. When I lived in Woodland, I think the population was like forty thousand. I'm sure it's just completely exploded now, but.
1: Okay. So was, so growing up there, was it like a topic of conversation? Like when I see some of these YouTube videos and posts, there's like a bar where people go and meet up every year during uh, uh, DB Cooper time. There's a uh, CooperCon, which I had no idea even existed until maybe two years ago. So, is all of that just around you? Are you there at those things? I believe I saw that you were a host one year.
0: Yeah, I spoke at CooperCon in 2019. Um, I was the MC for CooperCon uh, this last year, 2021. Um, I was at CooperCon in 2018 and then the aerial store where they used to have D.B. Cooper days. I was at D.B. Cooper days. It would have been I think it was 2014 and 2013 that I was there for those. Uh, but in, in 2014, I moved to Idaho. But to answer your question, yes, it is a, a topic of discussion there. Um, I've met many, many people growing up that claimed they knew who DB Cooper was. Uh, you know, it's, you know, my uncle Bill's friend out, out Namboys for sure him, but I won't tell you his name. Just like that right. kind of a thing.
1: That's that, that's so cool. That's so cool. All right. Um, so if you don't mind me asking then, uh, when was like the first time you heard about DB Cooper?
0: The first time, like most guests on the show, was Unsolved Mysteries. I remember watching it. It would have been a rerun because I think it aired in like 88. But I remember watching it with my sister. And then it was like Portland, Oregon. I'm like, whoa, that's that's right close to where we live. And it's like then Seattle, Washington. And he jumped out somewhere, uh, the woods and over here. I'm like, that's right by our house. Like this guy jumped out really close to us. And it was exciting that. I'm watching the show and it was local. Right.
1: That's got to that's add something so much more to it, you know?
0: Oh, 100%.
1: Okay. So you just said that you went to the, the, these DB Cooper related things in like 2011, 2012. How old were you then? Like, what, what were you doing? You're just a 25 year old at the time, like going to these things. and.
0: Yeah, I was there at the DB Cooper days. I was there specifically to drink. Um, that's what the event was. It was a huge party. It's this place. I want to say it's like 10 or 15 miles uh, from the freeway. It's a long drive out there. It's basically in the middle of the woods and there's nowhere to park and no one ever really showed up to this place. I remember the last few years that Donna ran it. I would drive by and if it was open, I would stop in because she sort of got to the point where she was like, If the lights on, we're open. If it's not, we're not open. Okay. But for D.B. Cooper days, it would be packed. I mean, it felt like the building was going to slide down the hill. People were parked (laughs) like miles down the road because there's nowhere to park. So you would have to just walk through the woods in the pitch black at night uh, to get to this crazy bar where there would be a bunch of people dressed up like D.B. Cooper. Um, You know, you had to tell people if they thought about going, look, it's cash only. So if, if you don't have cash, you're not getting anything there (laughs) because they didn't, I mean, they didn't have internet service to do a transaction or anything back then. It was such a cool place, even, you know, in 2010, 2011, whenever the first time I went there, it was like, it felt like a historical building, like just nothing had been changed in 50 years. It was just crazy.
1: Uh, I'm I'm sorry to cut you off for a second. Um, I get confused with a lot of the DB Cooper's DB Cooper stories. Is this is this, this the bar that he supposedly went to and made the phone call from? Or? No, it, it wouldn't okay. be.
0: Um, this is just a bar that sort of celebrated the fact that DB Cooper jumped in this area. In this and area. The, the only the only thing they could make a name for themselves with was hey, DB Cooper jumped in hey, here. So the owner. Uh, Donna just leaned heavily into that, and there was DB Cooper memorabilia on the walls. And if you came in there and you wanted to talk about it, like she was ready to talk about it with you. And then she passed away, and then the county, um, she was basically grandfathered in like this building doesn't meet any sort of health and safety codes at all. You're serving food in here with basically a residential kitchen, was what they were using to make food. Right. And so they, when she died, they said, you have to bring this up to current health and safety codes. Um, especially if you're going to serve food and drinks and whatnot. And Brian really wanted that to happen, but unfortunately he was a, never able to do it. He was one of the first guests on the show um, and, and passed away recently. So rest in peace, Brian. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Rest in peace, Brian. Um, Which, which Brian, I'm sorry.
0: Brian Woodruff.
1: Brian Ward. Okay. Okay. Sorry. You understood that confusion there. I thought we were talking about the other Ryan. Okay. um, So my next question is, uh, why do you do this, man? Um, (laughs) uh, So you went there to go and drink and now you host this podcast with, you know, like I said earlier, just all these really, really unique people. So what made you say, Hey, I'm going to start this DV Cooper podcast and go for it and do it for years. (laughs)
0: do it for years that's that is a great question so if if i could go back in time and tell my you know 26 year old self at db cooper days dude you're going to be doing a a radio show about this for years years i I would have laughed like no i'm not (laughs) i don't care about db cooper that much like i don't even really know the story i just know i saw unsolved mysteries and that's basically how much information I have on this. And the reason I'm doing this show is a couple of things happened at the same time. My wife got me this book, Skyjack. I read Skyjack and it sort of points towards Kenny Christensen and says like, hey, these people stopped working with me uh, and they're going to write their own book. And I knew Skyjack was two or three years old when I read it. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that other book is out. I got on Amazon. Uh, I was Into the Blast by Skip Porteous, I think is his last name, and Robert Blevins. And I read that book. And I was like, okay, I know who D.B. Cooper was. It was Kenny Christensen. And uh, I've solved the case. And I I thought, okay, I'm going to check out this online forum that is mentioned in these books, which was The Drop Zone. So I got on The Drop Zone. And it was just a chaotic, wild scene. And basically it was like everything I'd learned about the case was wrong, but some of it was right. And then I was like, I don't know what to believe now. These people seem to know a lot more than me. And Bruce Smith was on there and his book was fairly new. And some other people on there were like, oh yeah, Bruce, it's really good. You know, I just picked it up. So I thought, okay, I'll get this book now too. And I got Bruce's book and I was just blown away. I was like, there's so much more to this case than I thought. And there are all these crazy suspects and all of the suspects are wild and they all seem plausible. Like, how could this be? And so I started ordering more books. I think um, Bill Rollins book was one of the next ones I ordered. And I also at this exact same time where I'm just feverishly reading all these D.B. Cooper books I started this job where I work completely alone. So I listened to 40 to 60 hours a week of podcasts and talk radio. And, you know, I had fallen into the vortex. So I got on Apple podcasts and typed in DB Cooper. And there were probably like 40 episodes uh, right. that were related to DB Cooper. And I thought, okay, I'm going to burn through all these. And I started listening to them and by like the seventh one, I was already skipping past their explanation of the case because I, I knew more than the hosts of these shows at that point in time. And then they would all do the exact same thing. Um, Two or three hosts would go over uh, three to five suspects. And then they would agree on one of those suspects. And then the episode was done. And I was just like this, none of this is what I'm looking for. I want to know what Bruce Smith thinks. About this. And I was, I think around that same time, I had started listening to Joe Rogan as well. And he does, he'll do an episode that's three and a half hours. And as someone who's like desperate for more audio content, I was like, finally, there's somebody out here doing four hour radio shows uh, other than Howard Stern. And it was all just one interview. And I remember in the beginning, like, this is going to get boring. But It it never did. And I really, really liked that. And then another podcast I was listening to was uh, Tim Ferriss does a phenomenal podcast. And his style is a lot more. I'm going to ask you the question. You're going to give the answer than Joe Rogan, which seems to be like a super smooth conversation. It never feels like he's like really interviewing someone, you know? Right. But I I don't think I have that ability conversationally that that Joe Rogan does. So, but I thought, okay, um, you know, this is this is interesting. And then at the exact same time as that, this other podcast I listened to uh, called Naked Mormonism by Bryce Blankenagel, which is a phenomenal show. He was he started that show and he was like driving an interstate battery truck, I think. And eventually his show became so successful that he quit his job and exclusively was podcasting about Mormonism for a living. And I thought, okay, if this guy can create a show while he's doing a job and it's really good and I really enjoy it, um, maybe I could do the same thing with D.B. Cooper. And so I thought, well, the only way I could do that is if I could interview these people that I want to talk to. So I emailed the five people. It's not the people I most wanted to talk to. Okay, there's two things going on. I really wanted Robert Blevins. I really wanted Bruce Smith. And both of them live, you know, relatively in the same area in Washington. And so I thought, I'll email three other people in Washington and see if they'll be on my show that doesn't exist. So I emailed five people. And those five people are my first five episodes. It was Bruce Smith, Robert Blevins, Brian Woodruff, Bradley Collins, and the Foremans. And I drove from Boise to Seattle um, and interviewed everyone in person there. And it was just amazing. It was the greatest experience. Like I drove home and I was like, that went so well. It was amazing. And I, I felt like... I, I did a good job. I was proud of the interviews and I'm very critical of myself. So it's unusual that I would be happy <laughs> with something that I did. And right. I was just like, this is going to be great. And I drove home and I sat on those interviews for probably six months. I, I had this idea in my head that I could just easily turn this into a show. I wanted kind of a cheesy unsolved mysteries vibe to it. Uh, but, and, and I didn't want to go over the hijacking over and over and over. Uh, right. you know, if you li- if you've never heard about DB Cooper and you listen to episode one with me and Bruce Smith, um, boy, is it going way over your head because w- we just get right into it immediately. Yeah. So I, I couldn't do it and I struggling to edit. It was taking me a lot longer and Brian Woodruff posted on Facebook that this guy came around and made big promises about a new DB Cooper project, but it never happened. He's nothing but a phony and a liar. And he he didn't mention me by name. And I saw that and I was like, he's right. And so I printed it out and I clipped it to the edge of my monitor. And I was like, I gotta, I have to do something right now because I, I, I asked these people for their time to be involved with my project. And I haven't, I haven't done anything with that yet. And it was really weighing on me. And
1: that's crazy, man.
0: That's insane. (laughs) I had, I had worked with this guy, Russell Colbert, and he, I knew he went to school for audio video production and we worked together at this company I won't name the company because they were a shit show and a terrible company, horrible organization, horrible place to work. I have nothing good to say about them, but Russell and I briefly worked there together. Um, I don't think there are many employees that worked there for a long time because it was terrible. But um, the day that I left there, I kind of screwed Russell over because I knew that that company, if you put in your notice, you're fired. They're not going to let you work the two weeks. And so I had a new gig lined up, um, but it had a start date. So I was like, well, I'm going to work, you know, 11 more days or whatever it was at this company. And on my last day, I went in and I had planned on working the whole day and I brought donuts in that morning. Cause a few people knew <laughs> that yeah. I was quitting and Russell, I guess he was my supervisor. Um, he was like the project coordinator. So sometimes he would be my boss, but on that morning, it was like, I was supposed to go with Aaron and Dimitri and and Russell and was going to go with Jay. And when I showed up, it was like, that had been switched. Russell was going to go with Aaron and Dimitri and I would go with Jay. And when I found that out, I was like, I quit. And he was like, what? And I was like, no, right now I quit. I'm not, I'm not going out with Jay. I'll go with, uh, I'll go with Aaron and Dimitri, but I'm not going with Jay. And then he's like, fine. Then you just said you quit. And uh, so I walked out the door and he he was pissed because he didn't want to go with Jay either. (laughs) He
1: didn't want to go with Jay either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that was the last time I had spoken to Russell. Like we weren't, we traveled together and we were friendly um, we were good coworkers, but we weren't friends. And so I don't know, it probably been, it had probably been around the same time, maybe like six months since I had spoken to him at all. And I called him and I was like, Hey, I have a crazy idea. Um, I want to talk to you about meet me at, at Mike's in CUNA and I'll buy you a beer. And he was like, okay. Um, luckily he met me, he sat down and I was like, all right, here's what what I could do for you. I decided to create this podcast. I did all these interviews. I thought that I could put it together myself, but I can't do it and I need help. And I have nothing to offer you except you can put your name on it too. It will be our show. You can have half of nothing. And (laughs) he was like, he just looked at me for a second and he was like, I'm in. And then I was like, really? Uh, He was like, yeah, I've, I've thought about wanting to do a project like that, but he's like, I can never, I could never come up with something. And I was like, you know, you can be involved too. If you want to be on air or whatever. And he's like, no, I don't want to be on air. And even to this day, he's like, I, I talked to him a couple of days ago and I was like, well, do you want to do an episode on the vortex? Like, you know, quite a bit about DB Cooper. You've listened to hundreds of hours of this and he's still like, no, maybe for episode 200, I'll do it and i'm like i'm not doing 200 episodes of this he's like yeah that's the point but yeah thank uh thank god for russell because otherwise <laughs> the show probably never would have come out or the only thing that would have come out probably would have been those first five interviews raw and they they weren't they weren't very good also to give russell one more piece of credit for the show one of the interviews i did in the very beginning i sort of pushed this gossip angle with one of my guests and we got into D.B. Cooper gossip for like 20 minutes. And it was, it was juicy. It was all like about other people in the community and it was very interesting. And when I gave those episodes to Russell, he gave them back to me. That one episode in particular, I was really excited to listen back. And when it got to that gossip part, it was completely gone. I mean, completely gone. He completely cut it out. And I called him and I was like, what the hell? Like, I thought that was the best part of this interview. And he said, you think it's the best part of the interview because you're involved in the gossip in that community. People who are listening to hear about D.B. Cooper don't care about the gossip of a few people online. And he had the way he said that even, he had like a firm stance on it. And so I was like, okay, I see your point there. And I guess I agree. And looking back on it now, that was 100% the right decision. I think if I would have done that in a few episodes, I would have had several guests that wouldn't have come on. And I think it just would have made me look bad also.
1: Okay. That's so Did is Russell from that area as well? Or is this after you moved to Idaho?
0: After I moved to Idaho, I'm pretty sure he's born and raised in Idaho.
1: Okay. All right. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. That's such an interesting story, man. The way that that all came together, the way that you kind of put the podcast up because you kind of had a gun to your head, you know, Uh, this guy was like, he didn't name you, but I mean, that's, that's truly awesome. You know, very, very cool.
0: Yeah, I did. When I saw that, I did send Brian a private message. I was like, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm sorry, you're right. And I'm working on it. And, you know, to his credit, he was like, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And we were able to be friends after that. So
1: really cool. Really, It didn't didn't make me mad. So so the first podcast you did, you actually drove to locations and talked to the people one-on-one and face-to-face?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, I wanted to do all of my interviews in person. And prior to... March, 2020. Um, most of my interviews were in person. I drove, I drove from Boise to Seattle and the gorge to Portland. I drove from Boise to, um, I think it was great falls, Montana to interview John Cameron. I drove from Boise to salt Lake to interview Greg Gossett. Yeah. I, I, I like doing that, but since COVID happened, it's just a little bit easier to do it this way
1: right to do it this way absolutely man I, I mean who knew that's awesome I think everyone's really gonna like to know that so the next question is and all the time that you've been doing the podcast it sounds like you've listened to at least 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 people's versions of, of their stories um, this is a question off the DB cooper vortex is there anyone who are there any of the suspects in DB Cooper who are you're willing to just take off the list like there's no way it was this guy there's no way it was that guy like who, who who are the people that you just there's just no way it was them
0: there are anyone who is also the zodiac off the list um i there's just no there's just no way those people for sure i can say a hard no um ed edwards hard no on hard. on, on db cooper frank morris there's no
1: way Zodiac killer they had it wasn't his style of of crimes he took credit for almost everything he instigated the media they they have descriptions of them you know
0: there are two other suspects who i really don't like and that would be rackstraw and mccoy i just they they were so heavily investigated I know there's a lot of like, Oh, there's the FBI is incompetent. Okay. But still you had, you know, dozens of people heavily looking into those people and nothing was found, not even that no evidence was found. Uh, in many cases,
1: McCoy and Rackstraw have been ruled out. Right. And that's, and that's one of the things that, that I could never understand. And especially the, um, the McCoy thing, because, you know, just to look at his face. Slap a pair of glasses on there and show it to the stewardess. Is this the guy that was sitting on that airplane
0: They did that, and they played audio files of McCoy talking for the stewardesses.
1: And McCoy's the one who the FBI said, when when they shot him or whatever, we just killed DB Cooper.
0: Yes, but that's that's one specific agent, and it could okay. be that guy looking for fame. You know, uh, back back in 74, whenever McCoy was shot back then, it was still cool for cops to kill someone. Now it's not cool.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. All right. I just wrote these down as side notes, but Marla Cooper. Okay. any any validity there with L.D. Cooper? When I hear that story, I'm like, there's just no way that that happened. There's no way he didn't change his last name. There's just I uh, that one I can't stand, and the um and I know they're one of your first interviews, but the the Ron Pat and Tammy Foremans with Barbara, just can you speak on those two for for a little bit? They're they're, they're the two that like get stuck in my head and take it away.
0: Well, LD Cooper is is one of two or three suspects that the FBI says they ruled it out with their partial DNA profile. I think it was LD Cooper and Dwayne Weber are the two. The FBI said they compared to the partial. I I don't have a lot of faith in that because they have a partial that is collected from multiple sources. I don't know. I'm not sure what to think of the FBI DNA sample. So I really don't trust it or put a lot of faith in, in it, but LD was ruled out by the FBI using that. I don't think he really, really fits. Uh, I don't believe LD Cooper was DB Cooper. Now, Barb Dayton, if I could pick, if it was my choice who DB Cooper was, I would pick Barb Dayton because it it is the most Portland story of all time at that point. (laughs) It's just so so perfect it makes a crazy insane story just on a whole nother level crazier and more insane if that's even possible but it was barb db cooper i don't i don't think so but i don't think it's impossible
1: yeah all right respectable fair enough
0: and yes. one thing i'll say When I interviewed the Foremans, I had completely discredited that up to that point. I thought it was my impression of the Foremans were, I thought it was like some woke couple who was trying to like write a historical fiction book that they could just sell in the area locally. And when I showed up and, and knocked on their door, uh, they invited me into their home and I realized like these are the kindest, nicest, most wonderful people. Uh, I absolutely have nothing bad to say about the foremans. They were so kind to me. We did uh, it was a long interview with them and we did the first part of it and then Pat sort of was was tired from talking. and so we decided to go to lunch. So I got in his car, he took me to lunch. I had lunch with uh, Ron, Pat, and Tammy. And it was like I was having lunch with my aunt and my uncle that I hadn't seen in a while. <laughs> it was just, it, it was great. I had a great time. Then we went back to their house after lunch. Oh, no, that's not true. He took me to Thunefield. I think it's how you pronounce it. He showed me his hangar, his airplane, um, all, all of his classic cars. And then we went back to his house it wrapped up that interview. And I remember walking out of the house back to my car thinking, okay, my, my, what I thought of them was way different than, than who they really are. And I realized doing that, that they're not, they're not lying. Ron and Pat aren't lying to me at all. They are telling me a story that their friend that they truly loved told them. And that's something I've learned doing this show is that Most of these people aren't lying. A lot of them are doing this based off of something a a loved one told them, which is why on my deathbed, I'm going to make a bunch of wild accusations and confessions so that I know what my kids will do the rest of their lives.
1: OK, so this question um, is a question from me that I've always that I've thought about from time to time and haven't ever heard. How do you think he got to the airport and and how many different ways really are there that you can think of that he did get there? Were there buses that went to the airport? Were there taxis that that could have maybe taxi drivers been interviewed? Is was there? Uh, a hotel across the street. Like I'm not from the area. Uh, an accomplice? Do you think there there was an accomplice? Can you can you speak to that? The 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 way he got there.
0: Well, I think the real answer is I have no idea. Uh, yeah, there are buses that go to the airport. Uh, you could take a, a taxi. You couldn't really take a train. I've heard people say parked a boat by the airport and walked. I guess that's feasible but i i don't know how feasible that would be cuz the airports right next to the river but it's not i don't know it's possible but seems unlikely to me does he have an accomplice i don't know yeah um they did the fbi did talk to a bunch of taxi cab drivers but the problem is all of them said yeah i picked up a guy in a suit and took him to the airport
1: that makes sense too
2: right
0: and back then Probably the vast majority of people were paying with cash in the taxi. So a lot of time you probably just got in and the guy doesn't really have much of a record. Maybe he has a ledger that he wrote names down on, but he could have given a fake name then too. So.
1: Right. Right. All right. My next question is I've always, I've always thought about the guy who checked DB Cooper in. it wouldn't be TSA at the time. Right. What, what is that situation? The guy who says, um, "I checked in DB Cooper. I sold him the ticket. He asked me if it was a 727." Does any information about that guy exist? Did his name? Uh, did he did he speak more on the case? Was he ever interviewed? Yeah, he was interviewed. I think
0: his name was Dennis Lins. Uh I could be wrong about that. I could be mixing people up. But um, yeah, they did talk to him. I've heard that he asked if it was a 727. I'm not sure if if that's fully confirmed or not, but I have heard that he asked if it was a 727. Uh, but at the time, it was just the gate agent. So he just walked up to the Northwest Orient Airlines counter. I'll take a one-way ticket to Seattle, pays cash for his ticket. The gate agent asks him, what's your name? And he says, Dan Cooper. And the gate agent writes Dan Cooper on the ticket. D.B. Cooper didn't write his own name on that ticket. The gate agent did. But then from there, he just essentially walks up the back stairs or the aft stairs of the 727. I had uh, Brendan uh, Kerner, I believe is how you pronounce his last name on the show. And uh, he is not an expert on D.B. Cooper, but he was an expert on the golden age of air travel and the golden age of skyjacking. And he told me at that time, there were flights where you could literally pull up to the airport, walk in the back of the plane. And after the plane took off, the stewardess would walk down the aisle. And if you didn't have a ticket, you could give her the $27 or whatever the flight would be um, in the air. So, yeah, security was a lot different.
1: Yeah. Okay. The the next question I have, and I don't know if anyone's... Uh, okay. is there? Does anybody know what time... He bought the ticket versus when they got onto the airplane. Was he in the airport for a while? Was it an hour? Was it 30 minutes? You know, like, is there anyone ever spoke on seeing him at, at the gate, but no one knew to pay attention to that? He was, he was there for a little while. I don't know the exact answer,
0: um, the time difference between purchasing the ticket and boarding the plane. I would it's probably around 30 minutes. I could be wildly off by that, but there were, there was, I believe two people who saw him, uh, waiting at at the airport. But again, you know, have you ever been to the airport? Did you walk past any guys in business suits?
1: Yes, sir. Yeah. If I had a time machine, man, I would go back to that day (laughs) and just buy a ticket for that flight. You know, problem solved and see what plan B was.
0: Oh, 100%. I would, uh, I've done, (laughs) i do the exact same thing. So I'd get on the plane, I'd sit close to him and I would just look over and wink at him and be like, you're going to get away with this.
1: (laughs) You're going to get away with this. That's awesome.
0: And then I travel back to uh, 2022 and I could tell you all, oh my God, it was Barb Dayton. It was
1: Tate. <laughs> Portlandia baby. <laughs> All right. Um I think I kind of already spoke on this. My next question was, did the FBI look for any abandoned cars or abandoned boats in the area? They did. And 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 just found nothing. There there wasn't anything there.
0: No, I think there's uh I could be mixing a couple of stories up here, but I know that there was a car like at, at a lake or by a dock and it had like a U.S. parachuting sticker on it and they camped out by it uh, for a few days and the person came back and was like, oh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't me. But there was also a, another copycat skyjacker.
1: who it was Barb uh, Davis. Was it? No, 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 no. That'd oh. be funny, though. It was a girl. <laughs> you know? There was another no,
0: copycat a- who, when he was caught, he had a U.S. parachuting sticker on his car as well, which was pretty funny.
1: Pretty, yeah okay um so so some of the things that i've been confused about is like okay the airplane the passengers entered from the staircase in the back of the plane that's how everybody got on
0: i believe so yes
1: okay so they walk onto the plane and everyone is walking up to the front of the plane for for some reason you'd think you'd want to be in the back of the plane because you're going to get off first so so everyone walks onto the plane he gets on last. He's right there. Um, the question that I have is, is if the, the money transfer. I've hear. i hear, I've heard tons of people say they had to walk past all of the guests or all of the passengers with the bag of money. But if he's at the back of the plane and that's where the money's coming from, how did anyone, how did anyone, there, there was no one to be walked past to with a bag of money?
0: I believe they used the aft stairs um when they brought the parachutes and the money up that is uh, a a point that was debated by like robert 99 and flyjack on the drop zone recently uh with different fbi documents coming out but that's there are a couple of things in this case that i'm even hesitant to discuss because there have been so many completely different narratives um the parachutes specifically Um, I believe I know what they are now because of some of the work Flyjack's done. But even then, I'm not super sure because I've read so many completely different accounts. And the FBI files, it's not like they come out and it's a beautiful, clean timeline of the events that transpired. Uh, The FBI files we have really are just a collection of notes from agents in discussions with people. So you could have one FBI file that that said, oh, yeah, they actually, you know, they ended up cutting a hole inside of the plane and sneaking the parachutes and the money and that. And that FBI agent has to write that report down and put it in the files. So even though we have these FBI files, there's a lot in there that obviously is, is not true. So there are still details about the specifics of the skyjacking that. I'm even. I'm not super sure of, but it could be because I've looked into so many of these wild theories that it's clouded my, my ability to determine what actually happened and what didn't.
1: Right. So if they use the back staircase, okay, if they use the aft the aft stairs, which is am I correct? Is that the from the side of the plane and the front of the plane? Then that's where they.
0: Yeah, on the side of the plane, they would. I'm not sure. The door on the side. Does like how you get down out, and go to the an airplane. Now. I see now you're asking me like specific airplane
1: questions. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> um, okay. I've always wondered this. Did DB Cooper have the stewardess put the windows down or did he have the passengers put the windows down? H- have you ever heard of that?
0: I believe that he had the stewardess do that after the passengers had left the plane.
1: After they had left the plane. Right. Okay. The next question is D.B. Cooper. He had two drinks and he paid with his drinks uh, with cash on the airplane. So aren't those more pieces of evidence? Were those ever collected? There's got to be two glasses with fingerprints on it. He paid for it with a $20 bill. I mean, there were only 35 people on board. How many different... You know, 20s, did they get on board would she not have remembered? uh This is the $20 that the guy who's hijacking the plane gave me. There's just, have you ever heard of anything like that?
0: That's a good question. I haven't heard of that specifically. I think it was Bill Rollins uh brought up something along those lines. And I believe that was like, uh you can't get a good fingerprint off of money because it's it's, it's porous, it's cotton and paper. So it's just not a surface that you could easily lift a print from was I think what I heard from Bill Rollins, but I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I'm not sure.
1: Well, it's out there now. <laughs> um, okay. The next question is uh, well, everyone always talks about the conditions outside. The weather—that's one of the big things that I always heard about when you just hear the broad strokes of the story. Um, but when I think about that, don't you think he knew what the weather conditions were? You know, I know the way he was dressed. Uh, I know that they talk about his shoes. But if if he had all of this other stuff figured out don't you think he watched the news that morning and, and heard what the weather was going to be like at eight o'clock at night or or talk to anybody at the airport? It, it's just, sometimes I get so hung up on the weather scenario when people talk about it was cold. It was windy. I believe I've heard you speak on it before um, saying that it's not maybe as bad as it was.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's as, as bad as it was at all. I think he wanted to jump at night. Because if he didn't want to jump at night, then hijacking a plane leaving Portland at two 50 in November, um, you know, it's going to be approaching dark by the time they land in Seattle, uh, that area, that time of year, it gets dark very early. Um, you think about going to work in the dark, coming home in the dark, um, very short window of sunlight. So, he, he wanted to jump at night. Otherwise, he planned this terribly, which I, I don't think he did. And in the Pacific Northwest, it rains. It rains a lot. It rains most of the year. And so if you live in the Midwest or if you live in Florida and you hear that it's raining, your mind goes to a, a storm because that's the experience you have with rain. Um, right. There, it's just a light drizzle that comes down all day long and nothing crazy. The temperature, sure, at 10,000 feet in the wind, it would be a little cold. He's not going to be in the air for an hour. And the temperature on the ground, I believe, was around 40 degrees. It's wet. It's miserable. But it's not that cold. And the area is not that remote. There's a lot of farmland that was in the area that he jumped in. There's a lot of really heavily wooded area that he jumped in, but there are also rivers and streams and railroad tracks and roads and houses and stores. So it's not it's not as remote as some people make it out. If he lands on the ground and he's able to, to walk uh, to get out, then he 100% lives. I'm not a survivalist. I'm not a badass. I'm, I, I'm a short, weak man. But if you dropped me into that area um, on a cold November night, uh, I can absolutely get out of there and it would be no problem. I'll do it in, in jeans and flannel shirt. It's the idea that he would have perished in the woods, because he didn't have supplies or he had to burn the money to stay alive because he needed the heat. (laughs) That's all, that's all total bullshit. Um, Anywhere in that area, you walk
1: uh,
0: a certain direction for a while and you're going to find some sort of civilization or a path that clearly takes you there.
1: Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to kind of go in a little bit of a different direction here. And uh, these uh, next couple questions, um, my, this next question is about uh, the plane speed. And I'm just going to bring this up um, based on something that I've encountered before. I take my family down to Fort Myers beach in Florida once or twice a year and, and have been for the last six years or so. When I get on the airplane and we take the flights, they say, from Chicago to Fort Myers beach, it's going to be a three hour and 10 minute flight. Now, almost always this has happened. The pilot will get on maybe 30 minutes in and say, Hey, the wind is going with us right now. We're going to be there in two hours and 25 minutes. I've seen almost an hour of a flight taken off of a normal standard flight time. Um, because the winds are going in that direction. Is there anything to that that could have happened in this D.B. Cooper thing where it couldn't have been tested the exact same way, in my opinion? No matter what, you took the same flight out, the same pilot, the same rut, but if the winds, is there anything to that?
0: Well, uh, I would point you to Dr. Edwards' book, Flight 305. He does an exceptional job. He has all this wind data at specific heights and locations and breaks down basically the exact jump conditions uh, that Cooper would have faced. What he also does in that book is he totally shits on the sled test. And I was a fan of the sled test. I thought, okay, they took the exact same plane. They flew it out over the ocean at 10,000 feet and 15-degree flaps with the landing gear down, and they pushed the sled out the back. Well, uh, it turns out that they didn't really duplicate as many of the elements of Cooper's jump as I had thought. Turns out they were flying at like 7,000 feet for some reason. They had the, the door to the cockpit open, and they just didn't really try to get it as close as as I had thought. So I was totally sold on that pressure bump, but after reading Dr. Edwards' book, now I'm, I think the pressure bump is likely where he Uh jumped, but now I'm not certain. Got it.
1: Absolutely. Okay. My next question is, as somebody that listens to your podcast all of the time, Bruce Smith, Eric Ullis, you have these two guys. Could you I listen to both of them. They both have completely different opinions about things. One of them believes real strongly into a different flight pattern, right? That's Eric. And then uh, Bruce seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, he seems to be a guy who's more, could could you you tell me the differences, the main differences between these two guys?
0: I would say the biggest difference is Eric doesn't really like the woo-woo stuff and Bruce loves it. Uh, that would be, uh, in my opinion, the biggest difference. And the Western flight path. I spoke with Bruce recently, and he he seems to be leaning more towards the Western flight path these
1: days. Very interesting. Yes, it is. And then and then and then that. Uh, so I always look really strong to to Bruce and, and Eric, and and really follow those podcasts. But then you've got Nikki, who I believe you're friends with. You speak to that. I talked to Nikki and friended him on the DB Cooper, uh, Facebook page, and he seems to know you, uh, very well.
0: Yeah. Um, Nikki is someone I've met doing the show who is a very, very close friend. Um, I absolutely love Nikki. He's great. And even just like meeting Nikki is crazy because you had, uh, another personality, that Nikki sort of was involved in. And then there was confusion over, were they the same person? Because for some reason in the DB Cooper world, there are a lot of people pretending to be somebody else online. I don't know why that happens, but it's all over the place. And so I was hesitant in the beginning to even, even engage with Nikki because of this. But it, it turned out like he sort of got the uh, got somebody else's reputation wrapped up with his, and and n- now he's great. His suspect James Klansnick, is is another one of these suspects where you you want to say like it's not that guy, but then you look at everything that has been put forward, and you're like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Like that's uh, that's really interesting. And Klansnick is one of a few people who, you know, you can make a case for the particles on the tie with Klansnick. Um, The only, the only real thing that you can say, oh, it wasn't Klansnick is Klansnick has no motive. He has a great job. He has a great family. Um, Seemed, seemed to be a pretty happy guy. Uh, Lived what seems like a great life, but you can't say that, he doesn't have a motive because you don't know what he thought. You don't know what was going on with him at the time. Uh, You know, famously the FBI closed that Las Vegas country music concert shooter case. And they obviously knew who it was, but when they closed the case, they said, we have no idea what his motive was. And, you know, at this point it's tough to get it out of him.
1: Right. Okay. Next question. Um, I listen to these Bruce A. Smith podcasts sometimes. Has has he named a suspect? Who does Bruce A. Smith think that DB Cooper is?
0: It's interesting. He really likes the the Mac V. Sog crew for it. Um, And one of these specialized commandos, I believe he would would lean towards one of those guys. And all of those guys say, it's Ted Brayden. But Bruce... Bruce isn't a big fan of Ted Braden. Uh, instantly, he'll tell you, oh, Braden, that's ah, not Braden. He's too short. Or uh, Braden didn't have the, the demeanor, um, the, the personality that Cooper would have. Braden would have been a little more chaotic, although Drew Beeson and myself would disagree with that. But Bruce hasn't named a suspect. And I really enjoy the guests who are really knowledgeable on the case but don't have a specific suspect. Cause it lets me sort of move around a little more. Um, you know, I've had guests on that have, you know, sort of ridiculous suspects and it's like, I have to take the, the show down this path, you know, even for some suspects, I won't bring up something that I know like goes right against it. Cause my show isn't oh. like, Oh, gotcha in your face. You look bad now. It's the whole point is, you get this opportunity to present your case of D.B. Cooper. And I'm just going to be the one that holds the microphone for you.
1: And I think that's one of the coolest elements of your podcast. The fact that you don't sit there and go, Marla Cooper, that's not right. You know, I I really enjoy that. You give people the platform. and, And as someone, as an outsider looking in, I've kind of thought, you know, why isn't he doing that? But now hearing what you're saying, this is what they've been told by loves one loved ones. This is what they hear in their family. That makes sense now. You know, maybe they're not as crazy as I think they are. If, you know, your dad said something to you or, you know, your husband said something to you on his deathbed. So
0: Yeah, I, I don't have a suspect. I don't know who DB Cooper was. And it's not up to me to tell you what to think about this because I myself don't know. So it's up to you to decide who you like, who you think is telling the truth um, and the angles on the research in the case that that you like. It's It's up to the listener. If you want to scream that someone is wrong at the radio, that's what it's for. You get to decide who's right and who's wrong.
1: Very cool. All right. My next question is, I don't know why this fascinates me so much. But the anonymous guest that you have on your show, is he anonymous to you or just the podcast? Like, do you know his name and know who he is? Or does he call you up as the anonymous guest and you have no idea who he is?
0: I, I know who he is. He's not anonymous anymore. He spoke at CooperCon. His name's Dave. If you want to look him up and you have to know his last name, I'm, I'm sure you could find it. Love the guy. He's
1: great. Very cool. Was there a reason why he was anonymous for that time or?
0: Yeah. And it's one that I really respected. You know, he has um, a legitimate day job that could potentially be damaged by him being associated with wackos. So (laughs) he, as a, as a passionate person about this case, even still realized like this is a fringe community with a lot of, a lot of oddballs in it. And maybe like, this isn't the thing that I should put my name on, but you know, it's the vortex. Once you get sucked in, you can't get out. I think the first time I talked to him, he was like, yeah, I know I'll do this for a little bit, but it's getting old. That was years ago (laughs) and, and he's still doing it. Uh, absolutely great guy. Very, very smart guy. And I also like the idea that he's anonymous on the show. Uh, he's, made himself more public now, but I'm not going to go back and update those episodes and put his name and edit those episodes.
1: No, you can't.
0: Yeah. I love that. It's anonymous. Yeah. I've had uh, one or two other guests that were like a a first name or a a fake last name. So I I get it.
1: All right. Uh, On the DB Cooper uh, vortex um, Facebook site, Chris Cunningham, This is the only question that's like this would like to know how far you think you could kick a football.
0: It's a good question. Um, I would say I could kick a football. (laughs) (laughs) I could kick a football 30 yards. How long can I make a field goal? I could kick a field goal from 11 yards, but that is, that's not in a play. If you, if I actually have to play football, then there's no way I could ever kick field
1: goals. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now a serious question was uh, in light of Darren's interview with Alfred Friedberg, do you think the money was spent?
0: I don't. I don't until that interview. I truly believed that they just weren't looking for the money and it would have been too difficult. This is like pre-computers, but this guy, this guy knows. I I mean, if, if anyone listened to that and disagreed with him, I'd ask you this. Do you think you know more about us currency than him? Right. And he's one of those guys where how many people in the world know more about us currency than him? He, he knows the most really he does. And he just so confidently was like, Okay, you're going to have over $9,020 bills go into circulation, and there are at least some people looking for those. And you have to remember also at the time, a $20 bill would be equivalent to a hundred today. So right? It's a, it's a lot more money than you think. And, and people were looking for them. and there were some specific things that they or specific things on those bills that they wanted people to look out for. 1969 Series A, star notes, Um, things that are very obvious for a teller if they're just flipping through 120s or something like that. Oh, that's a 69 Series A with a star on it. I'm going to put that aside uh, and check it. So the idea that you have 9,000 of these bills enter circulation, and I believe he said the average lifespan um, for a 20 around that time was eight years. So You have from 71 to at least 1979 that you're going to have a lot of these bills floating around in circulation and the odds that none of them were ever in a flagged transaction or someone just happened to look at the right bill at the right time. He's just like, that doesn't make sense to me at all. And then also the idea that there are lots of places in the world where you can spend US currency. So right. the idea that he then goes to uh, Turks and Caicos or something, or he goes to Honduras and is, is spending oh. is spending money there. You have to think about that also. So here comes the, this rich dude that's throwing all this money around and it's these twenties that we're you know, looking for in the States. And his biggest point with that was, well, forget about it being found there because it might not be, but that money has to come back to the United States, otherwise, it's not really worth it for that country.
1: Worthless, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's just paper somebody else brought and used to buy stuff. So he just he was just like, there's just no way that any of that money was ever spent. And he was very confident about that.
1: I've always kind of thought and, and, and maybe it's, you know, it's just maybe such a rookie thought that that maybe he had that money and you had the money and it's legit money. Maybe it could have been someone that knew how to alter bills get rid of the star, change some of the serial numbers around, you know, and get rid of it and different things. But the, the one theory that you brought up uh, in one of the episodes that I loved is when you guys said that he put the, the, the Tina Bar situation, that he put the money out there to see if someone would use it, spend it, and if anyone would get caught with it.
0: That's an interesting theory. The, the problem I have with that is... If you bury something and you want someone to find it, I don't think Tina Bar was a good place to do that. I would have gone to like, you know, Lewis and Clark Park or something and, and made it somewhere obvious, you know, put it it's in like- a kid's sandbox at a playground that's right under the drop zone. Right. Somewhere where it's, it's going to be found. You can't bury something on a remote beach. This isn't a beach that was public. It was a beach that a handful of locals would have known about was a good private fishing spot or hangout. It wasn't a, wasn't a park. So to, to put it there expecting it to be found in my opinion is foolish. It's if, I, foolish. if I want something to be found, I'm not burying it on Tina bar. Correct. Although what I just said is foolish because it was found on Tina bar. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I don't believe it was put there to be found. Um, Tom Colbert has this theory that, you know, it was planted there by, what's that guy's name? Pudgy, you know, Pudgy planted it there or something, and told the Ingrams to go find it the next day. I don't believe that story. I the Tina Bar money, like you said, we've said on the show. I almost wish that it never happened because it never it it doesn't answer any questions in this case at all. It doesn't answer a single question. The only thing it does is add a series of questions. And now we have to like debate the flight path because of where the money was found, like that kind of stuff. It's like, Oh, uh,
1: <laughs> right. Um, did you meet the kid that found the money? I haven't met Brian yet. Um, I
0: did, I did meet Bill Mitchell at the last CooperCon, which was pretty cool. W-
1: would Brian ever do your show? Have you, you've obviously had to have reached out to that guy before. Uh,
0: I, I believe he would. There's, I've thought about this. I asked Bill Mitchell if he would do the show and he said yes. And I haven't reached back out to him since with Bill and Brian. I know that the, the people listening to the show, my audience, they would love to, hear those people on the show, but I haven't had, I haven't had any f- firsthand account people on the show. I've only had people who, you know, theorize about the case or had a book on it. So uh, I'm not sure. I know Nikki's been bugging me to get them on the show and
1: I'll,
0: I'll probably. Is that,
1: is that a choice? That's a, that's a choice you've made to just have people that theorize about it and not have a was first-handed, had something to do with it?
0: It's become a choice. One of the things early on, I was like, okay, I'm not going after Tina Mucklow. Like, I'm never going to contact her because I don't want to be one of the the evil men who harass her that, you know, she writes about in the Rolling Stone article. So I just, right away, I was like, I'm never going to contact her. And so I never went after... Any of the people on the plane, any of the pilots, anything like that. So I just sort of assumed they were tired of talking about it. But you know, it's been fifty years. I I probably will get bullied by Nikki enough that I'll do
1: it. <laughs> he is the man. He's very cool. He I talked to him a lot before doing this podcast. I told you. I told you how I was kind of nervous about this and you can still probably tell I am, but Nick was like, dude, chill, have a beer. It'll be fine. You know? And he said, come to CooperCon. we'll party. Hell yeah. All right. So the next question is uh, off of the uh, off of Facebook site, Dave Foodman would like to hear about what your vision is for the future of your show. Wow. I think he was, and then I believe he, he asked after that, are you running out of guests? The,
0: okay, this is a great question and th- this will be a controversial answer. So um, I have tried to quit the show twice before and I I can't. It's like, oh, there's this guest or that guest or this development happened or this book is coming out or Cooper Khan. I am I am wrapping up this show. I am definitely not going to be doing DB Cooper. And running out of guests, the answer is, is yes. Um, I don't want this show to be watered down with people who shouldn't be on the show that I chased and got on the show for no reason. I, I don't want people to be on the show who don't deserve to be. I'm very proud of this show. I'm very proud of the work that Russell and I have done. And I've spoken to almost everyone I, I want to. All the people who want to do the show have done the show. All the people who are willing to do the show, I've already forced them to do the show. And the only people that are left are people who don't want to do the show or, or people who are holding out for, for whatever reason. So the show is wrapping up and it's, it's going to be wrapping up in the next few weeks or months. But what I am going to do is I'll, I'm leaving the show up, but if there is a guest that I would, I would die to have on the show, um, I'm going to do another episode. If a new book comes out that I think is phenomenal, I'm going to do another episode but I'm not going to be like actively pursuing people to be on the show anymore because I basically have to talk to most people. I have a guest scheduled for September that will be very exciting. Um, I have a guest scheduled in a few weeks uh, that will be very exciting. I have an episode that I recorded a couple days ago that that should be out or it will already be out by the time you will have listened to this. So, there's a there's a lot going on right now, but it's it, the Cooper Vortex. It's not coming to an end, but I'm, I, it's going to be on pause for a while. Maybe I'll do like a yearly anniversary update, um, and then one or two guests a year, maybe if uh, if it warrants it.
1: You're going to retire like Rick Flair.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Russell and <laughs> I. I I love doing interviews. I love being interviewed. I have a really good time doing the show, and I've learned. I've learned a lot. I have learned an incredible amount, um, not just about DB Cooper, but you know about podcasting, about conversation, um, about you know cold calling someone. I've I've learned a lot doing the show, and so Russell and I have a another show that'll be coming out real soon. It might already be out by the time you're listening to this, but uh, I wanted. I want to do another interview show where I'm not pigeonholed into a specific niche unsolved crime from 50 years ago. So (laughs) I'm going to Russell and I are going to do a show called the book of Darren, uh, where it will be, you know, me interviewing people that I wanted to talk to with no specific subject that I'm forced into.
1: That's awesome. That's very, very cool. All right. Liz Rogers on Facebook would like to know, And she asked me two questions, but they're both kind of similar. Um, The first one that she asked was, if you had to place a bet between William Gossett or Klansnick to be D.B. Cooper, who would you pick?
0: I'd pick Gossett.
1: Gossett. And then the second to last question that I have for you here, and I got this from 11 different people on the site. Apparently lots of people want me to put a gun to your head, but they said, if you put a gun to Darren's head and he had to name one suspect of who he thought was DB Cooper, who would he say?
0: I'd say Ted Braden.
1: Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then hope that that <laughs>
1: answer was correct. Hope that that answer was correct. <laughs> who you think it is, who you want it to be is uh, Barbara Dalton.
0: Barb Dayton. That's if I get to pick. It's not like I want Cooper to be Barb Dayton, but if I got to pick um, that's who I would pick. Cause that it would just make this story so insane, but you know, Barb Dayton probably isn't in, isn't in the running for the most likely suspect. You know, I'm really impressed with Drew Beeson's book, the paratrooper of fortune. Um, I like Drew's attitude. You know, he'll tell you he doesn't know when he doesn't know. He'll tell you the evidence against Ted Braden. And I, I've talked to a lot of people who don't want to do the difficult questions. But Drew is like, yeah, right away, ask me the most difficult question. Ask me what the worst evidence is against Ted Braden. And then I'll tell you why he's good. And, and so I have a lot of respect for that. And Paratrooper Fortune's a great book. Go pick it up.
1: Where do I get that?
0: Uh, Probably Amazon.
1: Amazon. All right. I want to buy one of Bruce A. Smith's book, but his podcasts are all four hours long. I'm like, what does he say in this book that he isn't yelling at you via the podcast that he's on?
0: I would still pick up his book. There are times where I'll be reading somebody else's Cooper book and I'll read something in there and I'm like, I'm not sure about that. So I'll reference check it against Bruce's book. Um, that's sort of the opinion I have on D.B. Cooper and the FBI and his, his third version that's out is, is fantastic. I highly recommend everyone support Bruce Smith. It's so do I, it's an amazing book. He's an amazing guy. He deserves all of the accolades and support and attention that he gets and a lot more. He is amazing. I love. Bruce. He's
1: absolutely brilliant. Yes. All right. Um, the last question that I have for you tonight—it's not even really a question. I'm just going to say the name, Larry Carr. Everyone on the forum wants to know if you're going to get him. What is the have you reached out to him? Is is that coming? Is that you've read, you said something? You have a big guest coming in September. Are you alluding to that, or can't you say it?
0: I have no idea what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> right. larry car man are we ever gonna get this guy
0: uh stay tuned
1: yes sir yes sir i, I not a, i've been working on that but not so a no.
0: i had i sent a request to the seattle fbi office to have larry Carr on the show and they said no but in the message i got back there was like a little asterisk at the bottom that said if I was unhappy with my response that I could appeal it to national. So I thought, okay, uh, this can't go wrong. So I then, you know, got that email, sent it off to national. And then I was assigned someone to deal with this guy who was really, it seemed like his job was to guide me through the process of getting this approved. And he was very helpful, very kind, got back to me the second time. He was like, okay, um, we'll get this submitted. We need to know what the show is about. We need to know a a link to the show where we can find it. Um, Who the audience is like vaguely, like my audience is the people who tune into this podcast. It wasn't like I had to name names, but it's um, and then they wanted to have a list of questions in advance and it didn't have to be like exactly what was going to be said, but it had to be enough that it represented the direction of the interview. And, you know, it, it took me a few minutes to put all this stuff together for him. And I sent it back. And then four weeks later, uh, something like that, um, this guy calls me back and he is like, yeah, they're not going to do it. Um, it's It's a shame, but yeah, they're just they're not into doing it. And I was like, okay, thanks. And he's like, but um, I think you should send in another request and and see if it'll happen. And I was like, okay, when? And he's like, right now. And I'm like, okay. And so I started that whole process over again. Only this time I didn't have like a guide or a coach. Um, it was just over email. And I got a response back five or six weeks later after that. And the official response I got was, uh, "My request has been denied, and no further explanation will be given." And that was like all that was in the email. And so, okay, I guess uh, that's not happening right now.
1: And that's probably the most intense thing you've had to go through to get a guest on, or
0: the most intense thing I've had to go through to get a guest on. That's a good question. I've I've got a guest who will hopefully be on in in the next few weeks that's been rescheduled, uh, quite a few times, but that's another one where I've been working on this specific guest since the show started. And
1: he so says, you just he just have some prizes for some people. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: He says this interview is going to happen and he wants to do it. Um, but they're a busy person. So beggars can't be choosers. Hopefully Absolutely. he'll be on the show soon. And, uh, It'll be awesome.
1: All right. Uh, so let me ask you this question. I know this one sounds weird, but do you are are do you know any of the notable people in the world that listen to your podcast? Because uh, the other day I was on Instagram. It was really cool. This probably about three weeks ago, and the pro wrestler MVP, who's uh, all over TV and all over the WWE network. Uh, he posted a Instagram photo online, and it was of DB Cooper. And he asked the world, "Hey, uh, do you think DB Cooper lived? Do you think he got away with it?" And then in his comment section, he goes, "I listened to this podcast called the the Cooper Vortex," and then and then he referenced something after that. So. I just want to let you know, hey, you're doing an awesome job. There's pro wrestlers and, and, and rad people out there listening to the podcast. and And does that information get back to you anyway? Well,
0: the the MVP one did because I believe he's a, a friend of uh, a friend of mine in the Vortex. So he he told me about that. That uh, he's like, oh yeah, I, I was some close with some people in the wrestling community. And I know this guy, and he, he listens to the show. and I haven't been up on my my wrestlers since I was probably 15. So I, I had to look into it, but I was like, oh, oh that's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I was stoked
0: that, that anyone listens to the show. When I put this together originally, I thought, okay, I'll do probably 20 episodes. And if, if those 20 episodes get 1,000 downloads overall, like for all 20 episodes total, I would be, I would consider this a success. And because I thought, who's going to listen to this? The only people I knew that would listen to it were the people that were arguing about it all day long on the forums. Outside of that, I, I wasn't sure. I thought, okay, maybe I'll pick up a couple true crime fans, but no one wants to hear about the same case over and over and over and over for hours and hours and hours. Uh, Well, it turns out a lot more people do (laughs) than I had guessed. So uh, to everyone listening to this, thank you. This show has been a, a great time and something I'm really proud of and enjoy doing.
1: And even if you retire the show, you'll never, you, 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 you cemented your legacy in this D.B. Cooper thing. They're going to be making you be the host of this CooperCon thing for years. Uh, and and when these guys, Eric and, and Brian and, and all these other people aren't here anymore, you're going to be there carrying that flag. So
0: maybe we'll see <laughs> but it's you they call it the vortex because you can't escape Kyle multiple times a day i'm checking obscure internet forums to see if anyone made a new comment about a 50 year old unsolved case that
2: That's sounds insane.
0: like something a mentally ill person would do <laughs> but i i can't Stop! I can't tell you how many times one of the first things I've done when I open my eyes in the morning is check the drop zone. Right? It just that's insane behavior. It, but I I really only know one person that has fully escaped the vortex um, alive, and that was um, Slugo. We'll call him and he had this great website n467 uh, us and it was a great resource of information on db cooper because he sort of put together these are the facts that we know this is sort of the timeline um without any theory or conjecture or anything like that and one day he was just like i'm done with this i'm out of here don't call me about this don't email me about this I'm done with DB Cooper. And he was true to his word because I've seen over the years, many people who have said, I quit, I'm done. And, but then you, you know, click on their profile and the last time they visited the drop zone was two hours ago, (laughs) or um, they'll say, I quit. I'm never coming back, but then they're back. So I'm, I'm not going to be doing this show as often, but I don't really see myself escaping a lot of the vortex. I'll still be checking on it, but I mean, even on the forums, I don't really post anything. I mostly only comment if it's show related. So I didn't rip post at all before I started the show. So I'm not going to be posting after, but if the show's officially over, am I still going to be checking the D.B. Cooper forum in the drop zone? Probably. I wish I could say no, but probably.
1: Let me ask you this. Is there anything else? I know you're starting another podcast, but is there anything else that you feel passionately enough that you would do another thing like this? Uh, The MLK shooter or or the Zodiac, you know, what what else interests you besides D.B. Cooper?
0: It definitely would not be true crime. I'm not really a true crime fan I don't listen to a lot of true crime podcasts there are some unsolved cases or like historical cases there are like heists uh interest me Isabella Stewart Gardner art museum heist I find that extraordinarily fascinating um as someone who is sort of like an av nerd uh and works in the telecommunications industry I find the Max Headroom incident also very interesting. Would I do a podcast about the Max Headroom TV broadcast interruption? Uh, probably not. <laughs> and then also it's like, that's another rabbit hole. I don't want to go down. And having, I'm from
1: Chicago, so I know that one really well.
0: Yes, that's an absolutely interesting case. Yeah. And I have a very basic understanding of some of the broadcast equipment that it would take to pull that off if it, was, if it wasn't an insider in, in one of those studios. So I find that really interesting because if it was outside and not an inside job, then the, the, just the sheer power that would have been required to do that is, is very interesting. And the idea that somebody could pull that off and disappear is very fascinating. I mean the FCC actively looks for broadcast interference. So yeah, it's it's tough to to get away with that. I mean also how many times have you seen that since then? Never,
1: ever. yeah.
0: So it, yeah, yeah that's kind of a long goofy answer to your question. not it wouldn't be true crime if I had to do it about a specific topic. See, I have this, good or bad personality where once i become interested in something it's not just enough to read a book about it and watch a documentary like i have to become the president of that thing you know like um before db cooper i would tell you it was jeeps and it wasn't just like that i could oh enjoy driving and owning jeeps no i had to design and build my own suspension systems i became the pre- the treasurer of an off-road club and then i was the president of that club and <laughs> ran these giant events and i don't know there's just something about me where was I compulsive interested yeah. in something it's not enough to be interested in that i have to be like deeply involved in the community
1: very respectable very respectable or crazy or crazy. (laughs) All right, man. Well, I, I I really think this was one of the coolest things that I've ever gotten to do, especially in the DB Cooper world. Um, your podcast, it's obviously a labor of love dude, because it doesn't sound like you're making a million bucks off of the podcast, like Joe Rogan and Howard Stern
0: making a million bucks off the podcast. Um, I pay $15 a month for the show to be hosted. And I did, I, I received a, a private donation uh, for $100 and that's all, that, the, that's all the income, um, all the travel I've did done, you have all to the split that with I've Russell. Um, I've, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I've, <laughs> I've paid, I've, I've paid for everything out of my own pocket. This show does not make money. Um, I want to be very clear about that because when Dan Greider's documentary came out and I was like, I don't think it's McCoy, but I like the documentary people. There were people that were angry at me and I had this criticism thrown at me that I don't want the D.B. Cooper case to be solved because it's in my best interest to keep the case open so I can keep my quote cash cow show going. That is so wildly inaccurate. (laughs) Um, I don't make any money off the show. I do this show because this is the show that I wanted to listen to. So it didn't exist. So I went out and made it and, and here it is. I hope you like it, but it's not, I'm not doing this to get rich. I have a day job. Um, I have a family to support. So the idea that I could make a living or even any money off of, of DB Cooper is ridiculous. There isn't anyone in the DB Cooper world that got rich from DB Cooper. There are rich people in the DB Cooper world, but they got rich from something else.
1: Right. Do you want to speak on that? (laughs) Or are we calling out in that statement
0: Uh, for being rich? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a handful of dudes that have their own airplanes Um, that's, that's a level of money that doesn't seem, uh, attainable for most people.
1: Another question. Um, I've never known this and I know I tried to wrap this up a little bit ago, but, uh, what happened to the airplane? Did they continue using it for years? The, the DB Cooper airplane, where is it now? Wouldn't somebody want that? (laughs) Yeah, they did continue (laughs) using it. Um, it's an airplane's an
0: expensive thing. And so they did continue using it. They pulled the seat out that Cooper sat in. Uh, they, they, I think they still have that somewhere. Uh, but no, it went, went right back into service and was in service for a few years and then eventually went to one of those airplane graveyard junkyards, probably Tucson or something like that.
1: Well, man, I really appreciate you letting me do this with you. Um, just to let you know, there are a few more questions—not many more—that I got on the website, but they were so specific to certain things that I figured that when you posted this podcast and there was there was a link on the Facebook page, then I would just upload those pictures. Or, or those messages to you and that you could answer them there for people. Cause I didn't know the context in which they were asking the questions, but I know you will.
0: Well, if you have a minute, I'm down, I'm down here.
1: I, I'm trying to figure out in which context Lisa, she wants to know until Mark said the FOIA request on. So was there a FOIA request uh, results on Ted B, Ted B Braden?
0: I'm not sure if there have been. I talked to Drew. I think it was just before CooperCon, um, and he didn't. He had, you know, some some newer, interesting stuff to tell me, but I don't. I don't know the answer to that FOIA question.
1: All right, uh, Mark M. Does Darren believe Bill Mitchell would, despite his reservations, recognize Cooper if he were shown a photo? Taken around the time of the skyjack. What about Tina Mucklow?
0: The answer to that is no, uh, definitely no. Uh, Bill Mitchell. I heard him. I I saw him with my eyeballs and heard him with my ears. Say he could not recognize who Cooper was at this point in time. One of the things he said I thought was really interesting was, right after the skyjacking, the FBI came to his house with like a stack of various yearbooks from military and like private parachuting organizations and was just like, all right, look at all of these guys and see if you could see who it was. Um, And then they'd come back with uh, four different pictures of of suspects and they'd show him those. Does it look like the guy? And no, no, no. And then as the years went on, it still happened. So there would be a new, a new agent shows up with two pictures and no, it's neither of these guys. And I've saw, I think I saw that other guy's picture before, but it's not him, but he, now it's at the point it's been 50 years and he's been shown so many pictures of these different people and, you know, try, try and imagine a handful of your classmates in seventh grade. You could probably accurately describe your two best friends. um, But then if you were asked to describe the other kids in the class, it's probably wildly inaccurate. Um, Bill Mitchell did not know he needed to pay attention to who this guy was until he was off the plane. If I ask you about the guy sitting two and a half rows behind you on the other side, and you didn't know that you had to pay attention to him, what would your memory be of that guy? And, And then 50 years after that, there is there is no way that you are going to put a picture in front of them and they're going to be able to confidently say, yes, this was the guy. Way too much time has passed for that to happen.
1: All right. I'm not going to give anyone's last names on here. So that makes everything better. Or uh, Hayden would like to know, does Tina Mucklow have full immunity to tell her story?
0: Well, she sold her rights. So, um, there were probably a handful of lawyers involved in that. So, um, seems like she does. Uh, she sold her rights to, uh, some movie company that's working on a movie tentatively called Nod, if you understand. And, uh, Bill Radizak, Radicek, I'm never sure how to say his last name. He also sold his rights to the same company. So, I'm stoked to see that movie. Uh, I hope it's awesome. I'll I'll see it the first second I can.
1: Chris wants to know, I want to know how Darren's going to react when we confirm that Braden was Cooper.
0: I will call Drew Beeson uh, and congratulate him <laughs> and uh, ask him if he'll come on the show again to uh, brag about how he was right and everyone else was wrong. That, you know, if the case gets solved, that's what I'm going to do. You know, the idea that I don't want the case solved because I want the show to go on forever. That's a stupid idea. And you're dead wrong. If the case is solved tomorrow and to my satisfaction, I can say, okay, yeah, I believe that narrative. um, Then I'll do a few episodes about that. And then the show is definitely done. There's, I don't want this to remain unsolved forever. I would like to know what happened. Um, I've said before, if it, if it gets solved and we get to find out who it was, but we don't get the story. Yeah. That's a real bummer. And, uh, that's That's a huge bummer. That's not the way that I want it solved. I don't want to find out, you know, in, 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 2041, they have some magical time traveling DNA program that they can use to find criminals. They use that they find Cooper um, it was Tony Clifton all along. Can you believe it? But he died <laughs> in 1996. Yeah. Well, now I don't get to hear the story of what happened when his boots hit the ground. What he did was this planned. Um, so if it gets solved that way, that's a that's real bummer. But I'd still do an episode. And one of the reasons it's a real bummer if it gets solved that way is because it's still not quite solved. And so you would have probably the same people who are already on the forums now going back to try and figure out and retrace Tony Clifton's steps and figure out how he pulled this all off. So I'd prefer we get some sort of a magical solution where I get to know all of the details. Um, I'd love to find, you know, somebody recorded their grandfather tell this story, Um, before he got sick, and they're waiting for him to die so that they can release this tape of his confession with all this detail in it. Um, People will say a confession is not enough at this point in time because there have been 900 confessions. Right. But if there was a confession that had a lot of really interesting detail that could explain a lot of this stuff, I'm willing, I'm willing to go along with that if you're able to provide enough detail to convince me. Um, Joe Weber, rest in peace. Uh, one of the things I think she was trying to do with Dwayne is create a story that fit all of those narratives, which is why people didn't really uh, think much of Joe Weber's theories was because it was like ever evolving and changing and she was trying to account for all this new information. So people just sort of dismissed it. Uh, I certainly did. I didn't think Dwayne Weber was a very good suspect at all. Um, And today I think he's a legitimate suspect. And there are several people whose opinion on this case, I really respect that think there is something interesting to Dwayne also. And Dwayne Weber, there's something about the sound of his first name and last name that's just tough to say for me, Dwayne
2: Weber.
1: Dwayne Weber. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, to speak on that, because Nick, Nick, Nicky, our boy here, he, he found uh, this, question, this question very uh, interesting. Kelly asked, I know, T- I know Darren has talked a lot with Tim Collins on Dwayne Weber. While I personally don't believe Dwayne, had anything to do with Cooper, I know Tim Collins does. I was wondering, after his interview with Tim, has this changed his thinking on Weber, for better or worse?
0: Oh, 100%. Um, One of the things that first started to change my opinion of Dwayne was, you know, that um, nostalgic journey. I forgot the name Tim calls it the... Oh, gosh, the memory journey, the romantic journeys, something like that. But they go on this trip across uh, Portland and Seattle. And she does have a lot of sort of interesting detail in it. Yeah, who knows how much of it is true, but the only suspect where there is a story for the money ending up on Tina Barr is Dwayne Weber. No one else has a story. And then when I did that first interview with Tim Collins, it was, it was very long, but Like he was so well-prepared and he had these video clips and audio clips and it told a very thorough um, and very interesting story. And that podcast was like five hours long. I mean, it was, it was a long one. It was a very long one. And then um, Tim and I seemed to get along great. I did that interview at my house and Tim drove up to my house in a snowstorm uh, to do that and it went great and then after that i didn't hear from tim again um i sent him a message like hey um the show's out take a listen let me know what you think um no response after he left my house there was no contact at all and then he reached out to me months later hey i want to do another episode would you be willing to do that and i said yes but i i thought to myself we did five hours on Dwayne Weber. What more do you have to say? What
1: else do you have to say? Yeah.
0: Um, And he came back and we did like three and a half hours. And (laughs) I was, he's, he's very convincing. He's very passionate about Dwayne. And he's also, you know, willing to sort of look at the things about Dwayne that discredit him. And one of the things that gives Tim, credibility in my opinion is that he isn't joe weber's memory man he is someone who was investigating this on his own who went down the Dwayne weber path um but everything joe says or does he he takes it with a grain of salt and you know he knows what kind of a character she is but i also like that you know he sort of developed this relationship with her in doing this. So I, th- I think Tim's great. And I do think it is a bummer when people just dismiss him as Joe's memory man, because that's not what he is. That was a moniker that HBO gave him that he learned of when he watched the documentary. Right. Yeah. Good documentary. It was great. It was great. basically a shorter version of my show.
1: Yeah. With video. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they had, they had those same people on Um, Okay. Uh, I guess we're just going to keep rolling with this. All right. Uh, I've got some other things. Uh, All right. Earlier, you kind of spoke on, I'll listen to one of your podcasts. It could be the first time that I heard Eric's podcast, Sheridan Peterson. After I listened to Eric's podcast, I was like, oh, there's no way it wasn't uh, Sheridan Peterson. And then before that, you know, and when you're a rookie rookie in the DB Cooper game, you heard the McCoy thing. And then the FBI agent saying, we got our guy. So you look at that case and as a rookie, you're like, ah, that makes perfect sense. Then you listen to your next episodes. When you listen to uh, Nikki uh, talk about, uh, and then Robert Radshaw, I think Robert Radshaw was the first one. I was like, there's no way it wasn't that guy. Um, it's such an interesting show. You know, you've done such a good job with that, man. Um, if I can just ask this question, Sheridan Peterson, uh, I, I, that's one of the guys that I've liked. What dismisses him in that?
0: Well, Eric doesn't even believe it was Sheridan Peterson anymore. Um, mm-hmm. y- you can't really even place Sheridan Peterson in the United States in 1971. And also he, he was a non-smoker, uh, different eye color, um,
1: Okay, I've always heard that too. And my thing was, isn't that, and it, it sounds weird and it's far-fetched, but aren't those two things that you could change? You know, is that not part of a master disguise? You, know, you, you smoke cigarettes, uh, you put in contacts.
0: I This is the question I'll, I'll ask to you on that. If you've never smoked cigarettes, I dare you to smoke eight cigarettes in five hours.
1: Yeah, I don't think <laughs> Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And there's, there's some reports. It's one of those things that's always debated. Cause it's like one person might've saw this, but there's a report that he had tobacco stained fingers. McCoy
1: now, now, yeah. McCoy now, also didn't smoke a drink.
0: You know, it's easy. If you're a non-drinker. Uh, yeah. You can have a drink. Uh, if you're a non-drinker and it's your first time drinking, you probably shouldn't have your first drinks before a skyjacking.
1: But, yeah, two cocktails before jumping out of an airplane, man. That's pretty rad.
0: That's pretty rad. But um, if you're a non-smoker in 1971 and everyone else around you is smoking, do you smoke? I do smoke. Uh, can you tell when a non-smoker is pretending to smoke a cigarette?
1: You know what? I I could if I was paying attention. Right? I'd have to be watching him. You can tell if someone's inhaling or not inhaling the smoke. Comes out different. It comes out in a different. I, and I'm talking about. I'm sorry. We're talking. I'm talking about pot here, uh, not cigarettes. But if someone who's uh, Bill Clinton style, not inhaling, the smoke comes out very like it would be ambering off of a off of a cigarette. Um, if you inhale it, it comes out uh, uh, much lighter. It, it doesn't look like the smoke that comes off of a cigarette.
0: Yeah, I just faking smoking be, you, is tough you could fake yeah. smoke a cigarette okay fine i'll believe that um yeah fake smoke eight in five hours and no one notices or you don't smoke and you're actually going to smoke eight cigarettes in five hours you're probably going to be violently ill
1: definitely <laughs> definitely all right so the next question is uh Now I feel like we're kind of all over the place. These are the questions that people ask you though. So I'm going to give them to you. Andrew Jones would like to know if you have ever heard anything about how the McCoys celebrated their Thanksgiving. Yeah. I've. So I, the way you started the podcast, you just, you dismiss McCoy, but there's some people on this forum that are like, let's hear the McCoy thing. Oh, let me just say one more thing to speak on McCoy. If he, he's not D.B. Cooper, he's not D.B. Cooper, but also a super fascinating guy. OK, just, you know, pulled off this heist, um, got away with it, apparently was an idiot and told somebody at work about it. And that's how he got busted. But then broke out of a prison, got into a, a, a gunfight with, uh, you know, do they keep you in prison your entire life if you get away with that? He, he had kids, he had a wife, he escapes, he gets shot. It, it's all, it's just as fascinating of a story. Yes. A little less fascinating, yeah.
0: Even, okay, McCoy's not Cooper. Does that mean his life is boring? No. What we no. know about him is absolutely <laughs> insane. He like breaks out of jail. I think it was like in Denver or something like that. Um, gets caught, goes to prison, breaks out of prison using a gun he made with like, uh dental paste Stuff. or something um, yeah. steals a garbage truck rams the garbage truck through a series of gates to get out of the prison um, somehow escapes in the garbage truck no one catches him uh, gets his way to North Carolina and robs a bank uh, and then ends up getting shot by the police but my favorite McCoy story is that once he gets home from the skyjacking, the National Guard calls him because they need a <laughs> helicopter pilot to go look for him. And so the idea that he's in the air looking for himself, I cannot imagine the smile he had on his face flying the helicopter in circles for no reason.
1: Right. And, 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 and I get that. So, you know, sometimes I hear it's not McCoy, it's not McCoy. I understand that it's not McCoy, but this man, dude, is just just as fascinating.
0: Here's here's one thing I think is possible with McCoy that I seem to be the only one talking about. There are a handful of suspects where it is. There's a potential that they could have had contact with McCoy. And so if you could if you could show me evidence that Ted Braden was having beers with McCoy in Vietnam. That that would be the most interesting thing ever because here you have a suspect for D.B. Cooper and then a D.B. Cooper copycat who improved on a few things that Cooper didn't do. McCoy had more, more specific instructions. McCoy knew exactly where he was going to land. McCoy threw the parachutes out the back of the plane and brought his own on the plane. Just off. Um, yeah, some of the other things <laughs> he did were very, very similar to Cooper. Um, his execution is wildly different. He was sloppy, he left things behind, he drew tons and tons of attention to himself. Um, Cooper didn't do any of that. So yeah. I and the age difference, the, the physical description difference, the fact that there's no evidence. To support McCoy being Cooper, there are people who, um, neighbors of his who say he was home on Thanksgiving. There are receipts, uh, gas station receipts, like to and from Vegas. Um, the FBI ruled him out. And if the FBI thought that it was DB Cooper, then why'd they go through with the John Doe indictment years later? Right. Um, th- there's, there's no evidence for McCoy being Cooper. None. You can't say a confession is because I can give you 11 other confessions that are just as valid. So that confession doesn't work. But what I think should be pursued is, can you link McCoy to Ted Braden? Can you link McCoy to Wolfgang Gossett? Because I think those are the two people where there is a potential that McCoy could have run into them. Um, Wolfgang Gossett was Mormon for a period of time, lived in Utah, was in the military and a survivalist. McCoy lived in Utah, was going to school to be a police officer at BYU. Mormon, also military. I mean, obviously that's a stretch there, but that's a lot of circles that they're both running in. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Braden, um, with special forces in Vietnam, McCoy was a Green Beret and McCoy was a decorated helicopter pilot. Um, it's I'm not saying, oh, everyone that went to Vietnam knew all the other soldiers that were there. Of course not, but it's possible. And so I think more likely than McCoy was Cooper, McCoy knew Cooper, and Cooper helped him with the second one. Maybe it's possible McCoy was the accomplice in the first one. Um, I don't really see how McC- Richard could have got to portland but maybe he did but but that's the story i think is more interesting did mccoy know cooper there's this book called happy valley that's uh it's called like happy valley murder mayhem and mormons and it was written by a private detective and his wife was like a forensic accountant or something like that and they theorize it was this uh can't, this parachute drop zone policeman they believe was Cooper. He was one of these guys who went around joking about the fact that he was Cooper. But in that book, they also theorized that maybe he knew McCoy because McCoy would have gone to his drop zone. So that's, that's what I think. If you are like, it's McCoy, it's McCoy. I, I don't think it is, but I I think there is a good chance that McCoy knew who Cooper was.
1: Yeah. And
0: that is really interesting.
1: That's super interesting to speak on something that I hear a lot. And, and, and you can agree or disagree with it if you want to. Sometimes when I hear people say the age thing, you know, like uh, Cooper was in his mid 40s and he looked like that. But everybody knows the handful of people. I have a buddy, Joe. He's 31 years old he looks 46. Okay. He went bald at 27. He's, he's a, he's a police officer. So he, he, he's got that cop haircut. Uh, he, he's got that job and, and he just looks, you look at this guy and you'd be like, yeah, you're 44. And then he turns around and tells you, no, I'm 30. So there's sometimes where like, I think that's where my mind goes with it. Like, was it, was it, was it Robert Radshaw and, and McCoy who were way younger than what people perceived to them to be or, or yeah, they were just both, of them, than-
0: both of them did look a, a little bit older, especially McCoy. McCoy definitely looks older than a 28 year old man in, in his mugshot.
1: His mugshot. Yeah.
0: He definitely looks older than that, but you know, Tina Mucklow sat next to this person for at least three and a half hours. And she sat right next to him. She's 22, 23 years old. She would have some idea. I don't believe
1: in- it was McCoy. Yeah. Because she, was, she, would she have- sat next to this man for three hours. A year later, when he is caught, there isn't any, in my opinion, there's no way that you wouldn't be like, yep, that was the guy. You, you, if you brought him into the room, she would know, you know?
0: Yeah. Six months. That's That's not a very long time. She got pictures and she got audio clips of McCoy. She confidently said it wasn't him. uh, And that's not the only thing the FBI did to rule him out. Uh, They couldn't place him in Portland. They believed he was at home on Thanksgiving, which was confirmed by uh, neighbors of his that weren't in the family. They checked the mileage on his car and didn't believe he could have gone to Portland and back. So there's just... But the, the age thing, I'm willing to... To give a few years, go back is like They reported mid to late 40s. I think the youngest report was like 35 and the oldest was 55.
1: 55, yeah. And the, and this was, he was apparently in Vietnam. Like, you've seen these war photos. You've seen a bunch of horrible things. <laughs> you know, you're like, you just age drastically. You know, like, I, I've just never been one to say, oh, I'll rule this person out because... They said he was 29, but really they said he was in his mid forties. You know, that, that's just one thing that I've always like, that's not concrete proof.
0: No. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to stick with the age. I just, I don't believe that the age could be that far off. Yeah. If you have a fantastic suspect who is 33 years old in 1971, I'm right. listening, but 28, 20, I get it. Yeah. I in my opinion, Cooper's in his mid 40s.
1: Yes. Now, everyone, I'm not saying we're discrediting people who have been on the podcast before. Um, there's no way, in my opinion, your opinion, I'm asking that he died in this jump. I don't believe that you would have found something, right? Shoes, clothes. It, I mean, think about all the things that he had. He, he had to have, he took the bomb case with him, which, uh, it, was it, I don't know when it, you guys say Ashante case. What are we talking about?
0: A briefcase.
1: Okay, Ashante. Okay, A- attaché. Was, uh, attaché. <laughs> I didn't know if it was thing that was like strapped onto the side. But how, how do you take all of that with you, you know, and it not just fly everywhere? Uh, I, I like the theory of when someone says, they saw road flares being dropped out of the airplane out of an airplane in the middle of the night. And, and I hope to God that, that was, that's what he did. He he opened up that case and dropped road flares and someone helped find him. But there there's, there's just no way that he died. And, and I, it's crazy to think that.
0: I want him to have survived. The story's a lot better if he survived, but there is equal evidence he survived and equal evidence that he died because there is no evidence either way. Yeah. Um, we know he jumped out of the plane because uh, he wasn't there when the plane landed, but we don't know where he landed, if he landed. The, the one sort of interesting thing is let's say he augured into the ground somewhere, which I think Himmelsbach is the one who started the augured into the ground where the drop zone was, there was a volcanic eruption uh, in 1980 or 1981, uh, Mount St. Helens blow. And that would have changed a lot of the landscape in the area that he landed in. So there is like some credibility that the, evidence of Cooper's body or his belongings or whatever um, completely disappeared when the landscapes change, when Mount St. Helens blew. I, I don't really buy that. I think something would have been found if he pulls his parachute and gets stuck in a tree, he's found right away. And I've talked to smoke jumpers. And if your parachute gets stuck in the tree, guess what? You don't climb up and bring it down. You cut yourself down and the parachute is stuck up there. Right. So if he pulls his chute, lands in a tree, at the very least, the parachute is found away, found right away, if not D.B. Cooper. If he's a no pull, statistically, you know, it's like 99.9% he'll hit ground and not water.
1: Oh, okay, that, that's a great question. As someone that doesn't know the case all that well, how much water how much of a possibility was that, that he landed in a river? Um, Around here, we have rivers, but uh, like we have the river that separates uh, the Mississippi River, that that separates Illinois and Iowa. Um, It's a bridge that connects the the two. So you land in a river, you're not talking about a mile swim, you're talking about three, 400 yards. So, so in what, in what situation and where could he have fallen where he would have been in water and drowned and, and, and whisked away in, do you get what, what I'm asking?
0: Oh yeah. I, I think the odds that he lands in water would be the same as if you took a full court basketball shot and, and nailed it. Um, and, okay. You, you, you would have to try to land in water. Um, Lake Merwin is, is a big, yeah, you could go water skiing on it. Um, it's awesome, but it's not that big. And if you landed in the middle, yeah, you could probably swim across. They also searched it with a submarine. So he's not in the bottom of Lake Merwin. If he pulls his chute, um, likely as soon as he's in the water, he's going to get out of his harness. If he, if he has training for this. Um, Get out of his harness and will sort of have to leave the chute wherever it is because he's not going to be able to swim with it. I talked to Navy SEALs about this um, landing in water. And the only like if he pulls over the Columbia and lands in the Columbia River, uh, probably let's go a few miles east of the Glen Jackson Bridge by the airport. The river is probably three quarters of a mile wide. Um, where it crosses that 205 is a little wider, but there's like an island in there. It's possible he lands in the water, but if he pulls his chute and lands in the water, he's likely found pretty quickly. You have that big floating object with the parachute and all his gear and everything like that.
1: Right. He's not stinking. He's not, he's getting caught in something. There's, um, and then, and then sometimes, you know, and this is just conspiracy theory talk, like he, he, everyone says the weather. And his shoes. But, I mean, couldn't he have easily been, you said it wasn't that bad. Uh, You've got a set of thermals on underneath your suit. Uh, Is there some contraption you can keep? I've always questioned the shoes. People sit there and say, oh, his Thumbs were stained with tobacco smoke, and he was wearing dress shoes and everything like that. So it's like you've got real specific details about what this guy was wearing, but the, the his face descriptions, people have discredited the entire time. They, the one person says, oh, that doesn't look like him. The, the next one, like the, the picture that we have of him is obviously not perfect, but the, the minute details that people sit there and are hung up on, you know, the, everything was thought out.
0: Yeah. Shoes specifically, I think is interesting because people always repeat he was wearing loafers and right. loafers. You sort of think like low top slip on dress shoe. Um, that's what comes into my mind when I hear loafers. Uh, can you jump with loafers on? Yes, you just have to like arch your foot to keep them on your feet. Uh, is it ideal?
1: Foot. No, but fly. Yeah, hell, you could Velcro, you <laughs> know, like the, the bottom of your sock to something like if you thought this plan out the way he thought it out, you'd have to know he was experienced. He have to, He would have have to have known these shoes are going to fly off me when I jump out of this airplane.
0: Yeah, I talked to uh, th- this one parachutist because I like to ask them, what would you put in the bag? The people talk about he had a green or brown paper bag or canvas sack with him also. And I like to get people who jump to speculate on what would be in there. A gun. What would you need to be in there? <laughs> and um, I w- I always said gloves and goggles, like that's what you would put in there. And right. this gentleman was like, bro, you could put gloves and goggles in your coat pocket. You don't need to carry that in a separate sack. And he was like, one of the things that I would bring in that sack is a roll of duct tape. I would duct tape my shoes on and I would duct tape the the cuff on my shirt and my pants so that my jacket, and my pants didn't start flying around. And I hadn't thought of that before. Like, that's, that's interesting. Brilliant. Like you can jump in a suit. You can find pictures of that, footage of it. Uh, the guy in the pursuit of D.B. Cooper, uh, Treat William's stunt double, I, stunt double, I assume, uh, yeah. jumps out in the daytime in a suit. Uh, seems to be no problem. But the right. idea that he's like, oh, I would tape up um, my arms and my legs on my jacket and my pants and tape my shoes on. I, I found that interesting.
1: I find that the most brilliant thing that I've heard about the DB Cooper case in a while. That, that is awesome. Yeah. I speculate. And I, and, and what kills me to think about sometimes, and I've, I've heard you guys talk about it before, but what would the potential of a plan B, you know, like what was it either not do it at all, or like, like you said, show that bomb in that bag that there is a gun does does it go down an entirely different way if he has to sit down in the middle of the plane or he gets any um negative reactions from the flight attendants
0: i've thought about that a lot i i don't know because we know we had a knife on him because he starts cutting up one of the other shoots you know is it is it a small pocket knife or is it like a giant buck knife uh in my In my mind, I'm picturing a small pocket knife that he's using to do this. Not exactly an ideal weapon if you're going to go up against people with guns. So is the bomb real? I don't think it is. But what is his plan B? If he isn't able to jump from that airplane, he's basically being transported in an aluminum tube to somewhere else where there are police waiting. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think the opportunity for it to go wrong for him was when the plane is on the ground in Seattle. If the, I believe the pilots could have escaped like there was some emergency release on the front window and then they could get out there and there was like a rope ladder. I hope I'm not screwing that up. If (laughs) you are a huge 727 fan and I got that wrong, but I believe that's, that could have happened, but the flight crew didn't want to leave Tina alone on the plane with him. Because you had you, three dudes up front, it's just Tina and back with Cooper. And so they chose not to do that. But I think if they would have escaped and the bomb was real, so now like worst case scenario for Tina, she's alone with this guy who has a real bomb. Based on his other behaviors, I would say he would tell Tina to get off the plane and then he would blow it up because you have to look at, he asked for meals for the flight crew. If, if you're thinking about murdering some people, do you really care if they're hungry? That's just not a concern of yours at all, but he cared that the flight crew would now have to be working later than they were scheduled. And so they would be hungry. Um, Tina says immediately after the hijacking, the first press conference, uh, I'm paraphrasing her, but he was never unkind and always polite. And that one time on the ground in Seattle, he was annoyed that it was taking long, but he was never mean or cruel. That's a pretty complimentary uh description of the man who was holding you hostage with a bomb yeah so i think if the bomb's real and he has to go to plan b based on what i know about a guy who i don't know who he is uh, i would say that he would probably get her off the plane and then then blow the plane maybe he had a gun i don't know but still, do you want to get into a fight where you have to walk down the stairs of an aircraft and then get into a gunfight air- with two dozen FBI agents?
1: Who are eager me- to
0: brag about the fact they shot D.B. Cooper, obviously.
1: Right. Um, which brings me to my next question. Dude, we're just letting him fly now, which is awesome. Why let him, why let that airplane take off? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Why were they willing to, to let him leave Seattle, but we're going to, had a big stakeout plan for him in Las Vegas. That, that's never made any sense to me. Like if you, if the plane landed in Las Vegas and he was going to refuel and that's, this all happened in uh, Washington or in Seattle. So now why would you, why wouldn't you just, you got him there. The people are off the plane. You were going to do, you did the same exact thing in Las Vegas. Has there ever been anything spoken about that?
0: Yes, there is definitely an answer for that. So there are two reasons why that plane takes off from Seattle. The first reason is that I've looked this up before, but I don't remember the number, so I'll just make one up. But uh, Northwest Orient Airlines paid you know 107 million dollars for that plane just a few years earlier. So the idea of losing a 107 million dollar plane plus the revenue they would have gotten from future flights and work with that plane versus the $200,000 that Cooper was asking for. If I'm running that airline, that's a no brainer. Okay. Don't, don't mess up the plane. Don't kill anyone. We'll give you your money. And that was Northwest Orient airlines attitude from the second this happened. The other reason I believe the plane was allowed to take off was because the FBI had botched a couple of hijackings recently where um, in one, they just like lit the plane up on the ground and civilians were killed. Um, another one, they like the plane gets started, but they shot the guy. So then it like crashes off the end of the runway. Um, they didn't have a good track record. Um, and in the, the late sixties, early seventies, I'm not trying to make light of this, but the police were quick to shoot back then. Um, So it was a different mentality and having received all of that bad press from these botched hijacking uh, interventions, the FBI had, they sort of stood back a little bit on this one and allowed Northwest Orient to um, deal with the hijacker.
1: So, I guess then the last question of that would be if they didn't think he jumped and there was still proof of him on the plane when they got to Las Vegas, Reno, 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 would they have been so eager to board the plane, search it and do whatever, or do you think they would have let him go from there?
0: That's a good question. I, when they land, I think it's, Bill, who was the first one back to check to see if he's there and and he's not. And then the FBI boards, uh, if I believe I have that correct. So I'm not sure if they were like, hey, he's not on on the plane anymore. He jumped. So they, they couldn't communicate with him right before it landed. But if he's in the plane when it lands, what do they do? That's a good question. I'm not sure if they would have. You know what? I I think they would have let him take off from Reno again. I really do. Take off? Yeah, because there was an attitude like, let's just comply with these hijackers. The planes are too valuable. Let's just do whatever they want. And so there was this attitude of if there's going to be a hijacking, you do what they want. Because if something goes wrong in the air, it goes really wrong.
1: Right. Man, that's awesome. Okay. Man, I never thought ever. I know you do this all of the time. Never in my life have I had a two and a half, three hour conversation about D V Cooper. Okay. So <laughs> there's
0: not many people that could talk awesome. about it for that long.
1: That could do this. All right. The the last question that I have on the the Facebook site is, and I'm going to butcher this guy's name. Whoever that guy is that uh that sold all the airplane security. Najib Hall. How do you say it? Najib Hallaby. Najib Hallaby, okay? People are asking what you know about this guy um, if he's still alive and if you would ever have him on the podcast.
0: He's dead. He has a memoir. Uh, where's my Najib Hallaby book? Crosswinds is the name of his memoir that's a book, another one of these books where I should have bought 70 copies of it when they were $11. Um, when I was the only person on the world looking for the Najib Halabi memoir. Um, but unfortunately I just talk about it on this show and all these yep. rare books are now too expensive for people to buy. Somebody messaged me like, dude, do you know? Crosswinds is like 90 bucks now. And I was like, I paid eleven dollars for it two years ago. I should have yeah, yeah. bought a stack of them. Yeah. All these books are like that. What do I know about Najib Halaby? He was this executive who is caught up in all these hijackings going on. The episode I did with Brendan Kerner is great. His book, um, "The Skies Belong to Us: The Golden Age of Hijacking," I'm pretty sure I got that title right. It's really good <laughs> and covers this all really well because once these hijackings started, the airlines were saying, we need security. We need security. This is terrible. Uh, we need help. It's all the responsibility of the airport. It's all on the airport. It's not on us. And the airport was saying, it's not our responsibility. It's It's got to be the government's responsibility or the airlines, but we're just basically a port. We're not responsible for the security of passengers on planes that don't belong to us. And so you had this debate over who was going to be responsible for security at the airport. Is it going to be the airlines? Is it going to be the airport or is it going to be the government? And Najib Halabi was sort of like saw an opportunity to to go around and and, and push this. He worked um, I want to say it was like for American Airlines for a while and um, a very successful career. He also coincidentally um, met up with Nixon the morning of the hijacking to discuss the issue of airline security. If you want to get even crazier, go to <laughs> the Najib Halabi Wikipedia page. And goddamn, the picture on the Wikipedia page is a dead ringer for D.B. Cooper, a yeah. dead ringer for the sketch. But he couldn't have gone from being in Washington, D.C. at noon to get on a plane in Portland at 250. It's it's not possible. And I think he, there was like a document that showed he had another meeting later that day as well. Do I think he had some sort of involvement in this or there was some cover up uh, that they pushed D.B. Cooper to help get the security passed through? I don't think so, because there were a bunch of hijackings after that that uh, weren't like government cover up jobs. They didn't need a fake hijacking because there were hijackings going on. Most of them wanted to go to go to Cuba. You had the that first hijacking for money. I get my copycats mixed up, but was the first one Paul Cini or Glenn Tripp, whichever one of those, they attempted the first skyjacking. Doesn't doesn't go well. Um, dudes, and uh, one, this guy I think was hit with the axe. Yeah, this was the axe guy, axe to the back of the head, which is a bummer. Um, and so- I never Cooper, heard of that. Yeah. Cooper is the second- Skyjacker who asks for money, but his is wildly successful and a lot different than the insane drug-addled person who did the first one. My my favorite skyjacking though is I, I get the skyjacker's names mixed up, but I think it is I think it's Glenn Trip, maybe I don't know one of them. He uh the the stewardess slips a couple valium in his drink. I've heard of this skyjacking yeah. and. His demands go from he wants like $500,000 and a a private helicopter (laughs) to he asked for a rental car, three cheeseburgers (laughs) and a five minute head start. And then it's like when he's walking down the stairs to get to the car, like he's heavily intoxicated and the police just grab him
1: just grab them yeah so
0: the stewardess on that like shout out to you if you're alive listening to the show you're a true badass and 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 what a move to be could you imagine like you're you're holding up a bank or a train or something (laughs) and then all of a sudden you're like oh shit like i think hey man i think i got drugged (laughs) that's very embarrassing
1: Oh, that's awesome. I wanted all this money, but now i just like a cheeseburger, please. Yeah. <laughs> and a head start. <laughs> that's awesome. I think, I think that's it. I, I'm on the Facebook. I got, I got nothing left. I'm sure down later and being like, oh, man, I had these three other questions that I had. <laughs> but if you, what's it called? I've, for, for weeks, I've been writing down that's six pages of notes and questions and the Facebook things. And I wanted to take this as seriously as I could because, like I said, to tell you the truth, man, I was listening to the podcast and I, I was like, man, I had these questions for him. And then I sent you that text message after like three Jamesons. And I was like, <laughs> I that guy I will never respond to that. Okay. And I've sent you text messages before. I was like, Hey, it's been three months. Where the fuck are the, the podcast at? You know? <laughs> and you're like, hey, don't worry, man. Some more are coming. So so I've always, I've always followed you. I can't wait to uh, to hear your new podcast, obviously. When you commented earlier about the um, what was his name? The Chicago guy that took over the radio. Max Headroom. Max Headroom. Now, for some reason, like I know, I know that story. Oh, Max Headroom, some guy that took over a TV station for five minutes. That's all I know about that. But now even your three minute description of like, it's fucking impossible to do that. No one's ever done it since. Now I just want to kind of go look at it and and research that because I'm that same type of guy too, man. When the, when the, there's something that I like and I find interesting, I try to figure out all the information about it. So Um, I think that this has been real, this has been really rad for me. Really cool. Um, I respect everything that you do. I think it's awesome. I think, I think people should know that you recorded those episodes and you didn't put them out yet. You were nervous about them. And that, that guy was like, Oh, this guy did nothing. And then your back was against the wall and you had, and you did something about it. Like, um, hopefully people see and that's what i wanted to do this for like this guy's making this awesome podcast for all of us to listen to <laughs> everyone listens to it you know and 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 what is this guy doing you know like it's really really cool if
0: there's something about about this format about long form interviews that are audio only where you know, you you could be in the kitchen cutting up onions, or you could be driving a truck, or you could be on a treadmill, or working on furniture in your garage, and you're part of a conversation. Uh, you don't you don't get to talk in the conversation. You're just listening to the two other people. But as someone who is a very passionate fan of the spoken word, there are people where I'm like in my head they are a huge celebrity because. I've spent, you know, in some cases, hundreds of hours just listening to them talk, even though I never got to speak back to them.
1: That's how I feel about you, brother. (laughs) Okay. Very, very, very cool, man. I was like, I know all the stuff for your next podcast. I heard that I was super nervous about this. And uh, I mean, I had a blast and and learned a lot. Just very cool. Thank you for allowing me to do this with you. It was Very, very
0: cool. Thank you for for setting it up. I've had a few people, I told you, you know, say that they wanted this to happen, but you were the first person that was like, I want this to happen and I want to be the one to do it. And so (laughs) I respect that as someone who has cold called and, and emailed people out of the blue, I get it.
1: Yeah. 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 The podcast podcast means a lot to a lot of people. So it's very my my wife has had to listen to this nonstop at nighttime because I get home from work at one o'clock in the morning and then a new episode will be on and I turn it on. And then after that, it starts going through the next podcast on the Apple playlist, you know. So she's like, Jesus Christ, Kyle, I woke up. I listened to this guy, Darren, talk about D.B. Cooper for six hours and I couldn't sleep. And it's, you know, very, very cool, man.
0: Well, thanks, Kyle. I appreciate this. Is, uh, is there anywhere people could find you if they want to tell you you did a good job or you were terrible or you asked all the wrong questions?
1: Uh, I'm on that DB Cooper site uh, like crazy. The DB Cooper and, um,
0: mystery group on
1: Facebook. Yeah, the DB Cooper mystery group on Facebook. Um, and other than that, I don't know what I want people contacting me and talking about.
0: Well, that's a great idea. Let's just keep it to. If you <laughs> yeah. want to find Kyle, you could uh, head over to the DB Cooper head Mystery to the Cooper Facebook podcast.
1: podcast. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it,
1: man. I really appreciate you, Darren.
0: If you want to chat with Kyle and tell me did a great job or complain that he butchered your question, you can find him on the DB Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook. Do you have a theory for the Tina Bar money? Did you find a parachute in some old 20s in the wall at your grandpa's house? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Kyle Kesterson for volunteering to interview me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for voluntarily getting that awesome Cooper Vortex tattoo. Thank you to Darian Osadich for volunteering his song for us. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.
2: He jumped into the cold well, A raspberry and a cigarette He's in the air, the stage is set Polite and kind, the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man Evie Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Rolled up in his coat, built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed no one knows But from his tale a legend rose it Was a cold dark rainy night As he walked he saw light Held his cash close to his side he Just needs to catch a ride This is how the story ends goes about the money and the man. Eddie Cooper, they call me now. Catch me if you can. Down to the bone Looked for a place to use the phone Little cafe outside of town he Walked in, he just sat down Met a man with a cowboy hat He told a friend right where he's at to the night he disappeared and From that night a legend reared This is how the story goes about the money and the man d.b cooper they call me now catch me if you can 40 years the secret's out the story has been told d.b cooper's done running now he was 80